distinguished alumni for this year. And so we're on campus for the alumni reunion weekend, and they agreed to come and share their story and talk about the things they learned. So, without any further ado, I'll hand it over to you and, and uh, give you the floor. And then when you're done, if there's some time for QA, if you have some questions saved up, feel free. Well, I think I'll start by saying thank you for uh, agreeing to this format. Uh, when this was originally proposed to us, um, they had me speaking tomorrow night for like a half an hour or whatever. <clears throat> and they wanted me to come in tonight and do the same thing on a business level in front of the same basic group. And uh, when I was a kid growing up, they had these uh, fall conferences and the spring conferences. Do they still have that? Mm -hmm. No? We yep. We yep. just finished the fall conference just had, okay. this week. So on those fall conferences and spring conferences, they would bring in these high-powered speakers, and, but they were like evangelists, and they were leading people to the Lord. And I felt like for me to come in and give a presentation on a, tonight and then another one tomorrow night was overkill. So I said, can you get me into something more comfortable? And so this is what they came up with. And I'm much more comfortable talking to you in a setting like this uh, where we can communicate with each other, make eye contact with each other. And uh, I should possibly back up just a little bit. One of the uh, girls came and said, you know, did it take you from 54 to 67 to graduate? So I thought maybe I should clarify that just a little bit. Um, I was born in 46, and um, in 53, uh, they had a, a home for missionaries' kids um, just over here. In fact, where the gas station is now used to be a home for uh, MKs. It was called the Overseas Missionary Fellowship Home, and that's where I grew up. So I started here in the second grade, went all the way through 12, and then I took uh, three years of Bible school after that. Um, so when I come back to Three Hills, um, most people it's like, okay, you're coming back to the Bible school. But really, it's not. For me, I'm coming back to my home. Um, I was in China for five years, and I still consider that part of my home. But this is where the real serious imprinting uh, occurred in my life. Uh, I was from 2 to 12, and freshman through uh, graduate at, at the Bible school. And uh, I even, I mean, just, I've been with Leanna for a couple of days here as we, we were at Banff for a little bit. And, spending time and it's just, it's an emotional experience actually to come back to a place where you grew up um, I just had my 73rd birthday um, and so we're kind of entering into the the winter of our lives which we have no remorse for um, but it really helps put into perspective the life that you've been blessed with and we really have been blessed with uh, a wonderful wonderful time um, all right, so we're supposed to be talking about business, and uh, I debated about, okay, so you're, you're, you're students and you want to know the principles of leadership, and of course, we've all read all these books on leadership that are out there, or a lot of us have. Um, and um, I've developed a jaundiced perspective on the literature, on the print medium that's out there to sh give people advice on how to lead. Um, it's interesting to read, um, but it kind of, it doesn't mean anything until you find ways to apply the principles of leadership. So instead of talking about the principles of leadership, um, I've decided to just basically tell you how I developed my leadership skills. And like I said earlier, it's really unjust of me to not include Leanne in all of this. So when I say I, it's really we because it's been a joint journey together for 47 years. We just had our anniversary. Um, and so what I want to do is, is tell you about how we were able to accomplish what we did and the steps that we went through to do that. So most of you, are you aware that we developed a company called P. Graham Dunn and uh, that we developed with products? Have any of you heard that before? So this is all brand new to all of you. All right. Um, The only thing I knew about wood products when I was here at Three Hills, I remember Mr. Dolson was my shop class teacher. And he taught me how to run a coping saw, which is a little saw that enables you to cut little patterns 
And I made a beautiful little lamp that I put beside my desk that on all four sides that had a flower and a light bulb down here and a shade up there. And I could turn it on and off and went to sleep with this beautiful little lampshade. That was all I knew about woodworking, period. Um, I graduated from Bible school, ended up going to the University of Alberta in Edmonton, got out with a microbiology degree. Um, and to make a long story short, um, we were married in, the, in August of 72. And in January of 73, the two of us were recruited or were assigned by the Eastern Mennonite Board of Missions and Charities to open a group home in New York City. And Staten Island was one of the boroughs, and that's where we started the home. Um, we knew nothing. Uh, Leanna has a degree in math. Uh, she graduated from Eastern Mennonite University the same year that I graduated from the U of A. Um, but we were madly in love and looking for a future, and we really didn't care where. Um, that was kind of, in fact, when we got married, how much, what was our budget for getting married? We tried to do it in $100. Oh, no. Uh, you want to show them your ring? Your bunny trail. No, it's a good bunny trail. <laughs> And that came from a pawn shop. <laughs> so we were kind of from the generation where your future really didn't matter. It was like, are you married? Are you happy? Um, and then your future will unfold for you. So that's exactly what happened. We got thrown into this um, girls' home. It was called the Staten Island Girls for Home. It was Staten Island Girls' Home. For, and it was for basically kids that came off the streets of New York City. And these were hardcore street kids. They were referred to us by the city of New York. Um, they did not have a home to live, they, live in. They weren't with their parents. And um, we tried to do the traditional uh, thing of having Bible studies and bringing structure into their lives. Um, and I think to some degree it worked. But you know who it didn't work for? It didn't work for me. Um, I felt that there was something that needed, needed to happen. We needed to grow something. We needed to build something. And um, kind of out of desperation, I said, why don't I see what I can do with either uh, candles and wax, leather, or wood? I'll pick one of those three mediums. And when I decide what to do, I'm going to go out and buy lumber. I'm going to buy a saw. I'm going to buy routing material, sanding material. And we're going to start a crash project in the basement of this huge house. And the basement of this house was maybe maybe eight times the size of this room. So it was a huge facility with no walls, and it was just made for a wood shop. So I brought the equipment in there and um, started designing. You know, she asked me, do I have any artistic background? None whatsoever. Um, I was never known as an artist, and I'm still not known as an artist, but when I have to develop something that is attractive to a consumer, that will sell and gener generate positive revenue, I can do that. And I guess if you call it art, then it's art. Um, so right from the very beginning, I was the artist, I was the designer, I was the crafter, and I was the one that took these girls one by one and taught them various positions in the craft manufacturing process that we were in. We did a lot with string art for some reason, and I still remember we would take big one by fours and create huge triangles and do string art all over the place. Uh, we would take boards and we would carve into these boards with handheld routers. In fact, we have pictures of these um, young Afro-American kids um, <coughs> carving away on a board. Um, and we would then take them to juried shows in New York City. We would go to the uh, West uh, Greenwich Village show. We would go to the South Shore Seaport Museum. And these were prestigious shows where artists in New York City were actually uh, selling their wares and uh, making a living from it. We would take our stuff in, I don't know, remember to this day how in fact we even got connected. No such thing as phones and all that other stuff. I mean, landlines. But, uh, we started taking our products to these uh, shows, and uh, lo and behold, we were making money. Uh, I didn't mention to you that the, the girls were all paid piecework. Um, and, by piecework, that means we pay you X amount for each piece that you do and for each step that you do it in. Uh, so they weren't paid hourly, they were paid uh, by how much they produced and the amount of work that went into it. Um, I started finding a sense of direction and purpose 
in the girls' home. And we noticed um, that, that even though there was still a high degree of disruption in the home, um, there was this one continuum that we could all kind of relate to, regardless of our background, regardless of our upbringing, um, that we were all into. And, and there wasn't any, there wasn't the back talk that you would get otherwise. It would just be like, okay, here's what we do, and here's what we get paid. Um, the girls' home started to grow. We would have, oh, maybe 10, 12, 14 girls. We'd bring in additional staff. And um, we started to become uh, monitored by the city of New York, because up till this point, we were strictly from the Eastern Mennonite Board of Missions and Charities, and so it was a private venture. Uh, but if you're bringing girls into a girls' home like this, it has to be kosher. So they uh, started to inspect us and figure out the process that we were going through. We had to come up with developing big manuals. We had a board of directors that we used to report to uh, twice a year. And uh, they wanted to know about the crash program. And so naively on my part, I just spilled, told them the whole story, what we do and how we do it. And here's a separate checking account. In fact, we went to Washington, D.C. one time in van with all these kids and came back. We didn't get permission from the board to do so. And when we came back, the board said, well, how did you pull that one off? And it's like, we don't see it in the budget. And we said, well, that came out of the checking account from the girls' home. Uh, and we paid for our own way down in back hotels and everything else. Um, but the city of New York started to drill down on this thing. And um, you know what they found? Anybody have any idea? I think Mark knows, but there was one big violation. Um, have anybody heard of child labor laws? Yeah. <laughs> he said, are these kids yours? If the if children are yours, you, you can make them work and pay for them, pay them for it. But if they are not yours, then that's a violation of child labor laws. And um, they said, we're going to have to uh, shut down the crash project. Just like that, it was over. Um, and they said, Peter, uh, you have a microbiology degree. Um, for you to continue in the position as the administrator of this girls' home, uh, you have to get a master's degree in social work. Well, I'm not the social work kind of guy. Um, but I gave it a shot. I took, uh, I took two night courses at NYU uh, towards my degree. Um, social work and, and I started to become miserable yes <clears throat> in the meantime we had a one-year-old daughter and um, we fully we'd been there for about three and a half years and we fully intended this to be our career and um, I finally told Leanna I said I can't continue in this capacity any longer it just I'm this is a square peg in a round hole for me um, and I'm the kind of person that needs to be doing something. I'm a little obsessive, compulsive, always have been. Um, and uh, I said, we've got to throw in the towel. In fact, we were looking for a, an apartment in the Bronx where it, I didn't go into all the details about the, the home being <clears throat> transferred to another location in Manhattan. But it, it was over. So we turned in our resignation and um, got a U-Haul truck. Um, she drove the 63 Dodge back to Ohio. I drove the truck, but guess what was in the back of that truck? Ah, the equipment. The equipment. Ah, the equipment was in the back of that truck. I didn't tell you that I put myself through a U of A on driving cab. And uh, frankly, I had my tail between my legs when I left New York City because I thought that was going to be our future. And. Um, I didn't know where I was going to end. In fact, I even thought about going back to Edmonton with my wife and with my one-year-old daughter to drive a cab, um, even though I had a master's degree in, or a bachelor's degree in microbiology. Um, but we, set, we drove back to the farm. The farm had a barn. And above the barn, there was a milk house, or in the barn, there was a milk house. And I set up all the equipment in the milk house. I got a job, a day job, building silos for $4.25 an hour silos where you store all this feed for cattle. And, um, and I was there for seven months. And guess what was spinning in my head the whole time I was working in that silo for $4.25 an hour? I could make more money doing this for myself. I can, yeah. I don't need the girls' home to start a business of my own. I can do this 
now that I'm over here without any without violating any labor laws. <laughs> and um, so in the fall of 76, um, I started making prototypes of products similar to what we were doing in New York City. And um, I had Leanna stitch together these little, um, not velvet, they were um, felt. 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 I didn't want these items scratched, so she made beautiful little felt bags for each of these items that she would then put into this, um, into the felt pocket. I would put that into a suitcase, and I asked for a week off of work, um, and I got two speeding tickets, but I opened up 20 retail accounts within 30 to 40 miles of where we lived. And I showed them the product, showed them the price. Um, I think at that point, the items were around like $7.50, the retail was like $14.95. Um, but I really knew nothing about business whatsoever other than what I had learned at Staten Island. I remember, in fact, one time I went into a store um, in North Canton. It was the, uh, the Lifeway store, which just now closed, it just closed down recently. Lifeway had 270 stores, and it was uh, owned by the Baptist Church, and they just recently pulled the plug on all of those. But, uh, so 42 years ago, I go in there, and this big buyer, he was, his name was Paul Satterfield, and he was, he was obese. He weighed like 350 pounds but he was very well respected in the industry. And I showed him my products, and I was nervous, um, intimidated, and um, he placed an order. Um, I went back about two months later, which would be about November, which is the peak season for the gift industry. Everything rotates around Christmas. And as I walked in the door, this guy got up out of the chair, and he pointed his finger at me, and he says, there's the guy! Oh my gosh, what did I do? <laughs> and he said, your products all sold out the first week you were here, and you haven't been back to place a refill for us. And um, so, obviously, that was good news. Um, and uh, then he turned to me and he said, "Are you going to be sending? Are you going to be billing this by an invoice or by a statement?" And you know what I said? I don't know the difference. Can you explain the difference between a statement and an invoice? Uh, so, I mean, we were just so raw. Um, about the basic principles of running a business, but we knew enough about ROI. What does that mean? Return on investment. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm getting some resonance here. ROI is return on investment. That is, whatever you cost, whatever it costs you to build a product, if you don't have ROI, you're going backwards. So you've got to have a profit in there. Um, and it's really taken me, even now, I'm still learning how to maximize that ROI. Um, in my head, I have a formula that my raw material costs and labor costs cannot exceed 25%. And I need the rest of the 75% for the sales and the marketing and all of the peripheral, peripheral expenses that go along. Now that applies to the business that I'm in. Every industry is different. I think in the grocery business, um, here, cost, cost of materials uh, and labor is maybe 90%. But in the business we're in, it's, uh, uh, that's the formula that I like to work towards. And uh, I'll digress here for just a minute. My favorite I item is what we call a Paul Bunyan toothpick. And it's an inch and a half high. Um, it's six inches long. Out of a one by four, we can get 40 SKUs out of that one by four. 40 of these items. These items are run through a paint line. They're run through a printing. You probably saw it being done when you were there. They're run through a substrate printer. My raw material costs on that piece of, uh, that stick is, guess how much? Zero. It's, 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 uh, zero, it's probably zero, it's close, it's your throwaway. No, well, I, okay, so. <laughs> like a dollar. Yeah, no, now one by four cost me a buck sixty, so it's four cents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I can get 40 out of a one by four, eight feet long, so it's four cents. Um, I re that that item, this will encourage all of you to get into the gift industry. <laughs> that item we wholesale for a dollar fifty. The retail is three ninety five. Mm. And on one substrate printer, two girls can produce fourteen thousand of those in an eight hour shift. Oh, that's called ROI. <laughs> but, but they aren't all that good. Uh, so I, I brag about that one because it's kind of a, a, a kind of a winner. But I digress, where was I? Oh, <clears throat> back to Paul Soderfield. Um, so we got through 76, and in, uh, in the meantime, Paul sent over to me a, a sales rep by the name of Russ Churchill. He was a defrocked 
she and a pastor who was living in a truck with a camper, and he made his living by selling product on commission. And by selling product on commission, if this widget sells for $5, or let's make it $10, he got $1.50 for making the sale. That's a 15% commission. That's pretty much how the, to this day, that's the standard of the industry. If you sell an item for a, at, a, at a wholesale price, the sales rep gets $1.50. Well, he covered the entire Midwest, and back in that day, we were selling primarily at Christian bookstores, um, which was kind of just a, a segue from being students at a Bible school. Um, and twice a week, we would get these big fat envelopes because everything was, everything was like handwritten, and there would be orders to all these stores all through the Midwest, and we were just like <clears throat> blowing up. I mean, it was, it was a fun thing to see. The first two employees, uh, Carol Curry was one of our neighbors. She came in as a 17-year-old. Robert Shetler, who is our VP of Manufacturing to this day, and you met him. Um, he started when he was 18. Um, we have 300 employees today. Those two are still with us. Um, they've been with us through all the highs and lows. Um, and if any of you get the impression that being in business um, is, is a simple ride, it isn't. But is it a gratifying ride? It is. Uh, because you're presented so frequently with challenges and opportunities uh, that you've just got to, you have to wing it. You've got to come up with your own solutions. And that's why I said earlier about leadership is something you learn from a book. Leadership is something you learn. And one of the best ways to learn it is to stub your toe and to stub it really good. So I'll lead up to, to that. Um, my eyes got a little bigger than my stomach with this whole concept of selling to Christian bookstores. And I said, well, what about JCPenney? What about Sears Robot? What about Montgomery Wards? What about catalog showrooms? And uh, I wanted to be a big player um, in, in the industry. And so I did. I'm a, I was a better salesman and a marketer than I was a business manager. I had not learned how to manage the business. Um, I actually literally cold called on Sears in the Sears Tower in the craft department and ended up with four pages in their catalog to make unfinished cabinetry with no stain or finish or anything for the craft market. Um, I got in heavy with uh, JCPenney. Um, and in the meantime, the Christian bookstore industry, if I would have been smart, I would have stayed with it. Uh, it was doing very well on its own. Um, and I got in way over my head because the uh, to make three-dimensional wood products is much more complicated than making two-dimensional wood products. And to this day, I, will, I do very little more than two-dimensional wood products. Mm -hmm. They don't take a lot of space in a warehouse. Um, it's, it, it's called home decor. Uh, I call it disposable art, and it's a beautiful thing being disposable because you know what? They're going to come back. Um, it, it, this, this, this is not rocket science. Um, so um, I got in with JCPenney, and one, one lesson I learned, um, there's, well, this was the, the beginning of the end. Uh, we had to make raised panel doors, and a raised panel door has four panels around it um, with a raised panel in the middle which is attached to the square. Um, and what I didn't know was that, I should have known this, but I didn't, that when you create a raised panel door, if you don't pre-stain the panel that goes into the middle, the panel shrinks. And when you do that, you get a nice little white border all the way around the door. Um, and I got a call from JCPenney. They said, we want you to come out for Den to Denver uh, to meet with our district managers. Uh, we have a problem with your product. And uh, I went out, and in front of 50 or 60 or 70 people, they, they stripped me limb for limb. They literally took products right out of the box, right in front of me. How can you ship product like that to us? I mean, it was a mortifying. It was an embarrassing situation to be in. And I had no, I mean, yeah, okay, I didn't know what I was doing. What, what, what else can I say? Um, the invoice came in on that shipment. They deducted $250,000 off of an invoice. Uh, just gone. And we were a small company back then. We were doing like $4 million. We had maybe 100, 125 people. They, JCPenney mandated that a Fred Stern, who, who was a person that they selected had come in to be my co-manager. <clears throat> well, he was Jewish, 
<coughs> um, he was brilliant. And he was also ruthless. And long story short, I'm going to have to take a drink here, sorry. <coughs> long story short, um, we decided to sell the company to him. Um, and we walked out with $80,000, but my name was off all the notes. I had no obligations. Um, and we walked out with $80,000. I said earlier, your best lessons are the ones that stub your toe. <clears throat> that one really hurt. That one really hurt. And I started over again in a chicken house. Um, and I swore I'd never borrow another dollar in my life. Um, and I didn't for 10 years. What year was that? That was 87. 87. <clears throat> um, and I didn't. I didn't borrow for, for 10 years. Um, and... Um, and I noticed that after, um, we, we, we got a nice little research because I, I still had all the contacts and I was known in the industry. But I noticed <clears throat> that I was flatlining in my sales. We were, our business was, was not growing. I went to the, uh, to the houseware show in McCormick uh, uh, in Chicago, in the McCormick Center. And I was at that point making nice little rocking horses. And um, a, a nice fellow from China came over and wanted to buy some horses from me. And you can see how naive I was. And so I sold him this horse for $20. I, read, I received a sample back from that same company, from that same gentleman, uh, maybe three months later, and he was offering me my horse for $12. Um, I knew that I was up against a new foe in China. Uh, and there's, with all due respect, I'm Chinese too. So. Um, they, they are an honorable foe, but they are a tough foe to beat. Uh, and to this day, I go to China once a year. Uh, in fact, I go again in October to the Guangzhou trade show. <clears throat> and why do you think I go to the show? I go to learn from them. Because they really, um, they, are, they, have, they are very accomplished at what they do. But anyways, um, so getting back to 80... It would now be like 92, 93. And um, I got an order from Family Christian Stores uh, for $50,000, and I didn't have the cash to fund it. So I went to a friend of mine, and uh, he lent me $50,000. Um, and um, I shipped the order. But business started to burgeon, and I had to start <clears throat> putting up additional facilities. So I had to call in a bank to say, um, I wanted to put up this building behind where we're working. It was maybe a 50 by 70, and I think it was like a $20,000 building. And they said, well, you don't have any credit. And I said, well, no, I don't. But I don't have any bad credit either. <laughs> and, and we got the note for that, uh, from that, for that building. Um, that same company, by the way, Family Christian Stores, that I sent uh, that order to, um, four years ago, they went uh, Chapter 11. And they took me for $326,000. And I didn't have what's called accounts receivable insurance at that point. Uh, I should probably define what accounts receivable insurance is. If, if you sell a widget to somebody and you sell it to them for $100, or let's say $10,000, they normally have 30 days to pay you back. Um, that's the general terms of the industry. Um, if they don't pay you back in 30 days, then you get on the phone with them, and eventually you wear them down and you get your money back. Well, with these folks, they owe us $326,000. They went out to six months, and then they declared bankruptcy, and we never saw a dime of that money. Uh, but it, we learned another lesson, and here's another great example of leadership in the marketplace. We said, okay, that was painful, but there are ways to avoid it. That is, you buy accounts receivable insurance. And so when you buy accounts receivable insurance, an insurance company comes along and says, okay, you're gonna ship a million dollars worth of product to this customer, fine. For $20,000 uh, that you pay us, we will assure that million dollars that you get paid for it. And so that's what we do now. For all of our big accounts, we take out what's called accounts receivable insurance. Um, we live on a family farm. Uh, it's our children, our grandchildren of the eighth generation uh, to be a part of this family farm. It goes, the, farm, the barn was built in 1848. And uh, in the year 2000, we put up a steel building. Uh, it was a, a $1.3 million building for this um, um, 
125 by 125 square feet. Um, and it was a, it's a very durable, permanent, long-term building in the last 100 years. Uh, but we did it on the family farm, and I was very remorseful at the time that we did that. Uh, because it, it's just, it's beautiful property, and uh, it didn't feel, that was not the legacy we wanted to leave with the farm. Um, so we bought 30 acres of land over in uh, Dalton, which is about a mile, and Mark has been there, about a mile from our home. And um, we decided that that was where the future of the company was going to be. Well, the next bite was going to cost me $5 million. That was the cost of excavating the land, putting up the building. And um, at the time, I was in mid-55, 56 in there. And uh, I said to myself, Peter, that's a real big bite for you to take. And I said, if I go bankrupt, guess what do I, guess what I lose? Besides the building, what else would I lose? Huh? The land. The land. Yeah, but what else did I just say that's very important to me on my farm? farm? I would lose the farm. So here I had was concerned about the legacy of the farm putting a building on it. But if I went and put that building up and I couldn't pay back the notes, they would not only take the building, they would take the farm. And uh, how would that work in our marriage? <laughs> <laughs> she is, um, she's born, where, where she lives is within uh, 100 yards, 200 yards of where she was born, mm -hmm. or where she was raised. And so the farm is very important to her, and it's also very important to me. I've become very attached to that property as well. So guess what I did to the farm? We have four children. We gifted the farm to the four children and put in an LLC where they each have 25% of the farm. And then they have what's called a reachback. Anybody know what a reachback is? I gave them the farm, but if I had gone bankrupt within, within two years of the gifting of the farm, they would have still taken the farm. So I had to wait for two years after the farm was gifted before I knew it was safe. Well, it was safe. Um, and we, we, we actually did not really, we never got into real trouble. Um, and this is rather interesting. In 2007, when that building was completed, um, that was when the economic recession hit in, 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 the, in the country. And our sales in January of 2008 were 50% of the sales of the January in 2007. Uh, we had to go to our entire administrative team, um, and we took a 25% deduction on their salary and we went to all of our employees and cut them to four days a week. And guess who cleaned the toilets in that building for two years? The both of us. Because we have a, a cleaning staff that was costing us, um, I think it was like 60000 a year. And we just said that was one thing we couldn't afford. Um, September of that year, <coughs> Um, the 25% was given back, plus we reimbursed them the 25% we took away. Um, and we got through the year and we ended up uh, doing pretty well. Um, here's another interesting tangential story that goes along with that. Um, for about 15 or 20 years, I liked to teach 11th and 12th grade Sunday school in our church. It was an age that invigorated <coughs> me and I enjoyed interacting with them. I now have five key employees in our company, all who came from my Sunday school class. <laughs> 17 months ago, we had a family meeting, and uh, the, 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 we have four, we have our, our oldest daughter, Anna, that was born in New York City, passed away, but her share went to her husband. So there's uh, Joan, we have three other children and the two of us have shares. So there's shares in, in six members of the family. And it was decided that um, for the security of the future of the company, we needed to put together what we call an ESOP. And an ESOP is called an Employee Stock Ownership Plan. 
um, and it took us 17 months, uh, 17 months to put together a plan, um, and just three weeks ago, prior to our coming down here, uh, the company was sold to our employees. Um, I had the pleasure of being able to uh, meet with, with around 250 people and explain to them that transferring the company into a new, uh, and you folks are the new owners of the company, and we made uh, nice t-shirts with them that says, we own this, and the next day they came to work with these black t-shirts that mm -hmm. says, we own this. And, uh, it's a very complicated process. I'm not even going to begin to try to explain to you how it works, um, but it'll be a very profitable venture for each employee. So they, they receive the shares, they're given to them, and then when they retire or leave, they are refunded the value of their shares when they leave the company. Just a couple more words about the, the business, then I'll turn it over to questions. Um, around um, half of our business is sold to mass merchandisers. And by mass merchandisers, I'm talking uh, back and beyond the um, uh, Hobby Lobby, Crackerboro, TJ Maxx, um, a lot of these large chain accounts across the country. But that's about half of our business. The other half of our business is what we call independent retailers, um, and they are brick and mortar stores um, that are mom pa shops and own uh, stores all around the country. Uh, we sell, um, I would say, 80% of our products in the United States, another about 10% in Canada, and uh, another 10% um, around the world. And I have four pages of notes here that I didn't get to. <laughs> uh, I was going to end with um, culture is a top priority, charisma is overrated, grow the business, don't borrow your way to success, sacrifice, pay others first and pay yourself last, hire people smarter than you. A visionary is a skill that you can develop. Be passionate, be loyal, be thick, be thick skinned, be thin skinned. Always be learning. Never use the term rest is history. People ever use that term, they, they come up to me and they say, well, no, the rest is history. And it was like, you mean I'm done? Stick a fork in it? I mean, what about tomorrow? What about the next day? So I, I never take kindly to the words, the rest is history. Uh, because that that means you've arrived, and the minute you feel you've arrived, you failed. A little aside there. Um, always be ready. Don't drop the ball. Education is overrated. Sorry. <laughs> I resemble that remark. Yeah. <laughs> uh, learn leadership in the fire, not in the classroom. Sorry. Uh, it's not like they're not mutually exclusive, but. All the classroom work in the world will never substitute from getting thrown into a position that you're totally uncomfortable with, that you sense you will fail in, but you're ready for it anyways. That's how you develop leadership. Um, terminate bad people. Can I tell the story? <laughs> uh, Mark left something up in the, the store of our uh, we have a gift shop above the factory. And just a few months before he came down, we took a saw saw and whacked out these big windows in the, in the store so that you can get a good view of the manufacturing operations down below. Well, the lights were all turned off in the store. We went up there around 8 o'clock in the evening to pick something up, and he was with us, Len and Judy Hartford, there, and Leanne and myself, the five of us. And I looked down, and here was two employees, uh, one of whom was the department head in the substrate printing department, uh, we have um, 12 um, 5 foot by 10 foot uh, substrate printers that run three shifts a day to crank out these widgets that we produce by the millions, literally. Um, and they were just horsing around. They were on their phone, they were talking to each other, standing beside a machine, leaning against the machine. And I stood there and watched them, and my blood pressure was just going up. And then Mark was in the background. And then I'm embarrassed, you know. It's like, we got these guys acting like this, but it was so dark they couldn't see us there. After what, 15 minutes? I just lost it, which is, how often do I do that? <laughs> I'm not in the job, so. No, just, but, I mean. It, you don't have a bad temper. No. You don't, I, no. I, 
But that one just kind of, it, I was just totally irritated. Plus, we were, we were all, they were kind of watching for this opportunity anyway. So what did I do? I went out and stuck my head out that window and I just started screaming at them. What are you guys doing down there? Aren't you on the paycheck? Aren't you on the payroll? Yeah, that machine's not running, and I mean, I and I didn't say it as nicely as that. Uh, I went into HR the next morning, and I told them what I did. And they said, "Thank you. You just gave us the smoking gun. We've been wanting to get rid of those two guys. We never could catch them red-handed." So the, the HR guys picked up the phone, and we don't like to terminate people inside the plant. You know why, right? Potential for volatility and concealed carry and all that other stuff. So we, if we terminate, we always do it when they're at home. Don't bother coming in. And everybody has an electronic key, which is all controlled by Franklin Geyser, my guru. Uh, turn that key off, they can't get back in. And, uh, oh, I was going through a list. <laughs> Terminate. I'm almost, I'm almost, I'm almost done. Um, but you've done very well. <laughs> uh, be nimble. Be audacious, or the Jewish word is chutzpah. Um, take calculated risks. You notice the word calculated? Uh, empower others. Stay on top of the details, but don't micromanage her. Learn humility. Learn humility the way Joseph did in the pit. Recognize the accomplishment of others. Give them sincere praise. Purpose comes from having a direction. Having direction. Finding your sense of direction. Find your sense of direction ASAP whenever you lose it, because otherwise you're just totally wandering. Um, books on leadership are generally a scam, I already told you that. They're just a money-making venture. And boy, they make a lot of it. Especially that Maxwell guy. But not, really. <laughs> not, not your family. I'm not John Maxwell. Um, read books about leaders, not books written by leaders, by authors who think they can define leadership. Um, in fact, if I look back over the books that I read over the years, it's almost generally um, biographies and autobiographies of leaders that I respect. Um, Tom Collins' uh, Good to Great would be the one exception to books um, that I would highly recommend. Um, work as hard as you expect your employees to work. Don't be late. Don't forget an appointment. Embrace fa failure as your best teacher. And turn off your cell phone. All right, so now I'm going to defer to my wife's suggestion and say open the floor for questions. What would you add, Leanne? Leanne? Um, for those of you that are, are business majors, well, any of you, but none of this was planned, okay? I think, and you're all followers of Jesus, what it takes is one step at a time. We had no idea when we said we would go into a girl's home and become house parents that it would lead to this. But, but we were doing what God wanted us to do that. And so, um, yeah, take, take the next step and God will take you where he wants you, not necessarily what you dream of doing right now. So, and at our age, we can see the big picture. We can see that, okay, we were following Jesus back then and then we took the next step. And yeah, people asked Peter if, if he um, planned this. Yeah, well, very, no. Very frustrating <laughs> when people say, is this what you expected? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Are you serious? You know, from Staten Island to this, you know? Or from growing up right over there? Mm -hmm. You know? I mean, but. Can you guys apply this to your lives? I mean, if it, we're not unusual people at all. I'm, I'm Scots-Irish. Basically, we're just stupid and stubborn. <laughs> and, and if you persevere and find an opportunity, find a crack in a wall and walk through it, there, there really is not magic. I mean, I mean, you notice our education had nothing to do with this. It was all about perseverance and grit. Um, let me try and trigger a story that I know is, is in your warehouse of stories. Uh, you, 
and it relates highly to this grit thing, creating, finding your own way through. And it was your experience um, in high finance on Wall Street. Oh. <laughs> Can I tell you that one? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think everybody would like to hear about that. Yeah. I mean, well, this is stupid. I mean, it, it, this is, I mean, it, it's, it's beyond stupid. I mean, that's why I say I'm Scots-Irish, you know, I'm not very intelligent, but you can't run me over. You can't run over me. Um, well, you can, but I'll get back up. <laughs> um, so one day, Nancy Sosman was one of the girls that lived in the girls' home with us, and she was a Caucasian. I guess maybe that's why I picked her. Uh, the rest were almost all Afro-American, and she was a hippie, um, and she traveled all around the country, ended up in our home. In fact, I asked her how she traveled, and she said, I hitchhike. And I said, don't you worry about hitchhiking, you know, being a young woman? She says, no. And I said, what, what precautions do you take? She says, I wear a garlic neck necklace. <laughs> a little random. Um, so, I, <laughs> so we went. Uh, I said, Marina goes, I've heard about Wall Street. I mean, before I knew what Wall Street was. And I'm maybe 26 years of age. And I don't know New York City that well at that, at that point. And I said, we're going to go down. And uh, at the other fairs that we went to, we got in legit. We, applied, were jury, and were admitted, given a spot, and we set up. And I said, I'm going to go down to Wall Street, and we're going to set up right in front of the exchange. <laughs> so I took my 1963 Dodge down there with Nancy's husband, and our back seat of the car and the trunk was filled up with all this tchotchkes that we produced. And we set up shop, just like that. And all these Wall Street guys were walking past us with their suits and everything else. And pretty soon, the boys in blue, with their little lights, came along and pulled up beside us, and they said, do you have your permit here? I said, no. And then, I, of course, I did the smoke and mirrors thing. It's like, well, we're from a missions home, and uh, this is we're raising money for the young girls that are in need. And they were like, don't give us that line. Where's your permit? Well, I don't have a permit. And uh, they said, if you come back again, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be put in jail. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to let you off, but we're taking, we're confiscating all your product. So that was our, is that the story you were asking. <laughs> I think you had a good day of sales before that. I did. I think you, you probably sold quite a bit before they arrived or something. No. I, I don't. You, you just hurt from the loss of inventory. <laughs> you just hurt from the loss of yeah, inventory. Yeah, exactly. You said 10% of your sales are international? Yes. Do you do online? Yes, we do. In fact, I, should, I didn't really clarify that. Um, so all of my percentages excluded online. Um, Amazon is our biggest customer online. We do around three to four million a year with Amazon. Um, and e-commerce, in fact, one of the last things I did before I stepped down from being the uh, CEO, I sat the new CEO down and I said, um, I want 30% of our products in 2020 to all be on e-commerce uh, because the future, the, the, the thing about a consumer is they want that product, no matter, they don't care how they get it, they want the product and the consumer demand will never abate. They're always going to want whatever it is that they want. And so the, the challenge for the manufacturer or the distributor is to find out what channel it is that gets the product into the hands of the consumer. Well, it used to be before Bezos came along that the brick and mortar was your best bet. Um, but, and Bezos, even though he's a huge factor right now, I, I don't believe his business, he does more than 5% of the consumer, direct-to-consumer business in the country. So it's really not that bad. Um, but with everything else going on with e-commerce, with um, Etsy and Instagram and all that other stuff, <coughs> we're, we're trying to come up with, I, in fact, I told them there has to be a hundred different options of e-commerce that are out there for us to figure out. And I'm a little bit like Len Hartzler, the farmer over here, um, that has two big combines. And he doesn't drive those combines anymore. You know why? He can't keep up with the electronics. So he has a son that does it. And once in a while, he'll get on there if he doesn't have to do anything more than steer it. Um, and I'm the same way when it comes to technology. I, there's no way. I mean, I, at, 
I had enough technology to run a company when I owned it, um, but at this point, I think the whole social media stuff, it's for the millennials, um, and that's one of the most interesting things for me every day is to come in every morning at 8 o'clock, and here I am mixing it up with all these millennials in there. <coughs> I mean, guys your age. I mean, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, and I enjoy the interaction. And they actually enjoy the old man because of the 42 years under his belt. And so they'll say, well, why can't we do this? And I'll explain to them why we can't do this because it doesn't meet the, the, the uh, algorithms of the ROI that you need to keep that under 25% so you've got profits at the end. And uh, so it's, I, I really enjoy going into work. Um, I still um, chair the product development uh, session um, that meets from 10 to 11. 8 to, eight to 10 every morning. Was I getting the 8 to 10 every morning is um, the, the walkthrough. We have 10 different departments, and my foreman and I, Robert Chetley, my second employee, we walk through all 10 departments every morning for two hours. It's what I call hands-on management of the factory because it, all those parts, we, we develop, we have 3,000 different products on the shelf and we develop 2,000 new ones every year. So we have all these moving parts that we have to continuously stay on top of. So Monday through Friday, 8 to 10, all we do is go, and they know we're coming. Every department knows we're coming. They're ready for us. And Robert takes the lead. And um, we keep it, oh, I didn't, did I mention any more humor? Humor is, is a very important part of establishing um, the culture in your company. You've got to keep it light-handed. Um, you don't have to be a heavy fist. Um, and then from um, 10 to 11, I meet with four of the people in a product development committee, which I've been primarily mentoring um, so that they can transition the company um, into the next level of leadership. And so in that process, it's, there's, we leave our egos at the door. We also leave our cell phones at the door. Uh, if anybody calls, pulls the cell phone out in a meeting that I'm in, I call them out. In fact, I was hoping I didn't have to do it tonight, and I didn't. Uh, but we're really strict about cell phone usage uh, in a meeting. It's disrespectful. Um, and in a classroom, it's disrespectful. Um, so product development is, and it's, it's a lot like the garment district garment industry for women. Um, our ninety percent of our ninety five percent of our products are sold to women and the the fashions change every year. And so that's we're continuously reinventing ourselves and that's the only thing that really keeps us on the cutting edge of the industry. We get knocked off all the time. You know what knocked off means? Mm -hmm. And you know what? Every time I see it it's an honor. <laughs> because that says you're the leader. We're not knocking them off, they're knocking us off. And that assures our position in the marketplace. And when we were uh, in Banff, I told Leanna that I'm one of the few husbands that'll walk into any gift shop with her any time. Uh, she's looking for what she wants, but I am looking for what I want. And uh, many samples did we walk out with? Three. Three? Three samples. It's like take it back and all right, so there's some application here and so on and so forth. So you have to always be kind of sniffing the gas, looking for what the opportunities are. You have the canaries and the coal men sniffing the bad gas, you've got to sniff the good gas. And then follow the, follow the, follow the scent. Yes. How do you manage your inventories and all that? Because I, man, I can't it's, imagine. It's an absolute nightmare. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, we have a very, we spent a million dollars on a software system and basically it's a warehouse system that manages the, the inventory. Uh, it sets the safety levels for replenishment. Um, we, at the end, in about July of every year, we turn off what's not gonna be sold in the following year and that gives us six months then to shrink out that inventory and then start back over. But can you imagine the 3,000 different SKUs no. and 2,000 being replaced every year? It's just an absolute nightmare, um, unless it's part of your culture. And if it's part of your DNA, then it's what you do. Yeah. So do you have some advice for students, you know, ending their K-12 or their post-secondary work and they want to start a business, they have an idea, they want to start a business. 
where should they go? Should they start with a mentor, a friend, a helper, a visit some trade shows? What's the first step for them to take that, that leap forward? I think my first my recommendation would be uh, you must have some part of a feel for whatever it is you think you want to do. Something that you find interesting and intriguing and, and an area that you'd like to know more about. And then once I get that figured out, I would say find a place to work in an environment like that where you can see if there's a corroboration between the experience you have there and the passion that you have for it. And then I'd say get out of there as quick as you can and do it yourself. And if you don't start your own company before you're 30, chances are you won't. Kind of like women with having children, you know, it cuts off about 40, 42. Yeah, with men, if you're going to have a, if you're going to develop, have a baby company, it cuts off about 30. And after that, you don't have the energy, you don't have the creativity, you know, that's, that's for a startup. Being a business owner, can you quit the manager? It's yes. always on, yes. ever present. How, how do you balance? Uh, all of that specifically I don't, I don't. Did you get the question? I didn't get the end of it. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you balance it all, especially with regards to your faith? I'll be totally candid with you. Um, I don't, when I, uh, when I have my downtime, um, I am not reading books on theology. Um, I'm reading books on how to create a better business. Um, and I don't think I do a really good job at that other than the culture that I insist upon and sustain in my business. Um, I didn't mention, mention that our, um, our raison d'etre, our, our, our Lift him up is what we call is our mission statement in three words, lift him up. And so we lift him up in our lifestyles and in the types of products that we produce. Um, but I would say that my, well I compare myself to my wife. Uh, and my wife's passion about her faith um, enables her to really steep herself in her faith in ways that I don't. Um, so that's kind of a very transparent response to that. The other one choose. Well, I think the question was addressed to you. I, I mean, uh, I think you'd like to hear your answer. Are you frame it? Are you are you asking me to say how does he maintain? No. Like what, what do well, I think with us. Uh, we're, we complement each other very well because he's obviously a very driven person, a born entrepreneur, and and I'm not. And and I I my job really once the business was up and running, um, I did work in the home for years, but I was the keeper of the home, and I was the enabler so that he could do what. What, it, what needed to be done to keep the business going. And she's, she has a, a, a jail ministry that she's been a part of for maybe 20 years? 10. 10 years. She goes in every Saturday to the jail. Uh, she goes to uh, a um, Bible study fellowship once a week. Um, she's just re-elected as an elder in our church, board member in our church. Um, That's not really all business really. But, well, but he was saying, how do you balance it in your life and your faith? So. I think you mentioned culture is one of the top things on your sheet there right at the beginning. Yes. I was curious about what kind of culture you decided to set and how you went about doing that. Um, I think I made a number of references to the type of culture that I'm, that I'm looking for. Where <laughs> <clears throat> Part of it is where you put your ego aside. It's not about you. Um, show respect. I don't pull them at your phone. 
Uh, don't be late for appointments. Uh, don't allow graffiti anywhere in the building. Um, pick up anything you see on the floor and don't leave it there, especially if you're the owner of the company. Pick it up. Um, I always admired the way his grandpa walked, and uh, he walked fast and rapidly, and I do the same thing. That's just a small taste of culture. Uh, whenever I go up the stairs, I always go two at a time. And to me, that's another cultural statement. And my employees see me, they all go up one at a time. I go up two at a time. Um, so there's just a lot of nuanced ways of clothing, for example. We're not as strict as PBI used to be. It doesn't have to come, but girls show up here, I go to HR. I don't go to the girls. I go to HR and I say, I don't like the way she's dressed. Um, we, keep it, we keep it very conservative. Uh, and we keep it very safe. Uh, we have a lot, we have four vans that pick up Amish girls. They start working when they're 15 and they work just for us till they're 21, um, and 22 until that's when they generally get married. And those parents are very careful about where they place their children and they want a very safe environment, a safe place to work uh, where there's no sexual abuse uh, or anything of that nature. And um, so those are all just small ways now, cleanliness is another one. We, I don't know how many people, what did you say? Do we have a shop, clean shop? Mm -hmm. and Absolutely. A clean shop to me speaks very, especially in the wood products industry, uh, a tight culture. Um, the way you treat your employees, um, the, the respect that you show to them, maintaining a certain degree of humor. Um, so. And some of that would apply to any business, what, what maybe is asking what distinguishes us as a, as our, in our business culture? Um, I don't know, but I, I, without sounding arrogant, I'd say um, our, our culture um, is a huge component to the strength of the company. The people do not leave us. Um, they, they, I, I call them lifers, actually. Um, I mean, if, I, if they're the kind of people that I want them there, I, I'll start referring to them as lifers. I like lifers uh, because lifers can be taught something and then I can distance myself from it and they've then got it. Uh, but if you have a churn of people in your industry, in your business, um, I would great. say a general answer is we really we're Christian-based without forcing anybody. I mean, we don't only hire Christians, but Christian, we're undergirded by Christian principles. And we've had many opportunities to take, uh, take jobs that advertise alcohol or sex or whatever. And we, we've turned business down, things yeah. like that, and, and language and... Cracker Barrel's a big account of ours, and um... We do a little over two million a year with them, and they wanted us to do some LGBT, LGBTQ products for Cracker Barrel, and we had the audacity to say no, and they threatened to pull the entire account. And so some of my sales and marketing people, younger guys like this, they were freaking out. It was like, we're going to lose the account, and you know, they're they were they're paid on bonuses for the businesses, healthcare. We don't there are lines in the sand that we don't compromise ourselves on. And um, we didn't lose the account. But they were sure afraid that we would. Yes? Um, going back to balancing business with life, um, when you are you deliberate in the time you take off and do you leave when you are on your time off to get away from it? Or do you have other practices to because when you own a business, it's very all-consuming. So how do you get away from that? Um, well, the simple answer is you don't, really. Um, now, that doesn't mean the cons the, the, that, that being consumed is, is a negative thing, okay? But if you're in a business, it's not an eight-hour-a-day eight job. It's not a five-day-a-week opportunity. It's, um, but... For me, the key is I have to be able to scale back when I'm done for the day. And I have the ability to do that. 
So I, I'm usually home by five. Well, I was. The new stipulation on the ESOP was I had to have my butt out of there by noon. <laughs> they don't want me in there in the afternoon because I. The oak tree takes away sunlight from the little oaks, and so I've got to get out of there. Uh, and I'm struggling with that right now because for 42 years I didn't have to do that. Um, but I had the capacity to scale back. So after six, we're not talking business from six to ten. Um, we, I think at that point, we resort to a, a normal, quote unquote, marriage. Is there such a thing? No, but so I, I think at that point, we just we scale back. Um, the Sabbath is pretty important. The Sabbath is very important. And we lead, we lead, we lead simple lives. Uh, in fact, someone was going to write a book about me, and then he dug in and did a little research. He says, "Peter, you're just a simple person." <laughs> I took that as the highest compliment, you know. Um, so, and we we don't flaunt. We, you know, we go to a church, and we try to we. We want to be just a part of the community in a positive way. But to answer your question, uh, is there a way to disengage yourself from a business that you own? It's, well, do you want to answer that? <laughs> Actually, you it's might. It's difficult, very difficult. Yeah. But do you, is it unhealthy? In my experience, I got to the point where I was pretty consumed by it. I got to a point where it was it was unhealthy. People are wired different ways, so they carry it differently. Yeah, and I guess my question, just going off of that, would be how do you measure that, and how do you know? I would say if you start becoming dysfunctional, you've gone <laughs> too far. <laughs> and I, how do you know when you're dysfunctional? Other people will start to tell you. <laughs> So surround you, yourself with honest people. Surround <laughs> yourself with good people, with good friends. Just say you're going overboard. Not all, you'll get a kick out of this. Not all lucre is filthy. Hmm. <laughs> you know where that comes from, King James Bible? Okay. King James, there's four or five references in the scripture to filthy lucre. Which is ill-gotten gains, and so at least where I was, I was raised, it was like, you know, my dad was a missionary, and I'm a businessman, and a businessman generally makes his money with filthy lucre. So I like to flip it and say, not all lucre is filthy. All right, it's 7:30, folks. You've been you've been really attentive. I'm impressed. Um, and it's it's a, a diverse group that I'm, that we've been speaking to. I think I can speak on behalf of the group and say it's a pleasure. Yeah. And um, probably isn't what you expected, but it's what well, you got. That's yeah, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yes. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Thank you.